The story of the universe is an epic evolutionary tale of awesome scope. It speaks of unity and diversity, of creativity and imagination. It is the story of science, it is the story of spirit, it is our story. This is one in a series of podcasts from Green Spirits, the Universe Story event, held in London on the 14th of March 2015, recorded and engineered by Richard Adams. Today, Maddie Harland on transformational heresy, permaculture and beyond. I'd like to start with a personal story. 25 years ago, Tim, who's here, and myself were in San Ignacio Lagoon in Baja, Mexico. And we were early eco-tourists, I suppose, um, going to see the grey whales in their breeding lagoon there. And we were out on uh, nine-foot skiffs in the middle of this absolutely pristine environment, as it was then. And a mother whale came to us. They call them friendlies. They seek out humans for no reason but curiosity. And she brought us her baby. And the baby swam underneath the skiff, and I was steering it at the time, and came out of the water, and I literally looked into its eye at just a few feet And I saw an ancient, intelligent consciousness, far more profound than human time. And I realized that myself and the whale were not separated. We were the same being. And I also realized that the natural world was perhaps the most profoundly valuable thing that we have on this planet, that no human values or wealth can ever express the, the crucial beauty of this world, and that my life's work had to be involved in some way to celebrate these, these thoughts of understandings of deep time and interconnection and the beauty of nature and I hope the preservation of it. And so we went back um, to our daily lives and we founded a company called Permanent Publications, which is dedicated to publishing about permaculture and permaculture magazine, but far more. It's looking at the longest view of how we humans could perhaps create a more permanent um, and ecologically balanced culture. So that was just to provenance me, really. We're at this extraordinary turning point in human civilization. Our carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases are at 440 to 450 parts per million, and we're possibly adding 2.5 parts per million a year. So by the end of the 21st century, they may well be at 750 parts per million, and that there's a 100% certainty that we'll have between 3 and 5 degrees heating. And to look at it as as a scale, um, 
We've only been around for maybe a quarter of a million years, um, give or take a few 10,000 either way. Um, and the last time the planet was at three degrees was three million years ago. And at five degrees was 30 million years ago. So, you know, we're only talking in millions, and Greg would show us the wisdom of the billions. But we're talking about a radically altered Earth for future generations. And to many of us, that kind of breaks our heart and gives us this thought form that the sixth mass extinction is inevitable. And this is why I love Elizabeth's work because she's offering us a different paradigm. So I want to pick, unpick this paradigm. And by the way, this, this bloke's um, in a squirrel suit. And if I was in that squirrel suit, there'd be no guarantee that my wings would um, inflate and that I would actually glide to the bottom of the morass rather than falling. And I think, you know, there is that question in all of our minds, you know, we're in the squirrel suit of climate change. Are we going to fly? Are we going to evolve? Or are we going to plummet? We don't know. But I think there are some indicators that could tell us culturally that we might fly. So transformational heresy, what's it all about? It's about our culture's current ideas of what is common sense, what is... Um, accepted practice. Um, many aspects of our culture have been claimed um, to justify certain practices, and I'm going to unpick at least four transformational heresies. So often we look at new technology, um, and they're all about centralized economic models and ideas, not about empowering ordinary people. A transformational heresy is the opposite. It's about decentralization, about empowering people, about looking back in our time and understanding the value and um, insights of ancient cultures and appreciating the wisdom of the indigenous peoples. It's about stepping outside the patriarchy that we have inherited Often when we do this, we're demonized by conventional culture. And these alternatives are seen as woo-woo, as you said earlier, um, because they're at variance with all our current belief systems. So I'm going to uh, move ahead quite swiftly. I'm only here as a taster. The first heresy that I want to point out and in this process, I want to encourage you to see that you are all heretics, but transformational heretics. So the first thing is that small-scale agriculture can actually feed the world. We are taught, if we want to feed the world, particularly with our escalating population, we've got to have industrial agriculture. We've got to genetically modify our seed because that's more productive. We've got to use um, nitrogen and phosphorus and, uh, and potassium as fertilizers that natural fertilizers and green manures are not effective enough. They're too small scale. That things like agroforestry, permaculture, regen, ag, and non-industrialized farming methods are never going to feed the world. 
So let's take a step back. So here's nature. And permaculture design is all about understanding natural principles and then basing uh, the work we do on those principles. Nature makes no waste, requires sunlight, water and carbon dioxide to thrive. And if we want to design sustainable systems, we need to mimic these natural systems rather than create linear systems. Linear systems, and this is from um, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, uh, take natural resources, they make things, we manufacture, we mechanize, and then we dispose of them after we've flogged them for a profit. Circular systems are attempting to mimic nature. They make things, they use things, they take biological resources, and then they recycle them back into the system. And I'd like to propose to you that the most circular of systems is a carbon farm. Because instead of being a metabolism that takes resources and belches out CO2, it uses resources and then locks the carbon up into the soil. This is an intensive dairy farm, just about the opposite to a, a carbon farm. In the US alone, dairy cows produce 3.6 billion pounds worth of meat a year. They feed their cows soya, they never see grass, there are no birds in this environment, no bees, no butterflies, no beetles. Cows who usually live between 10 and 15 years only survive two to three years and they're put into barren pens. All our policy at the moment is pushing us towards more and more industrial forms of agriculture in this country. And there are already um, planned mega dairies here. And yet the ridiculous thing about it is that it's not necessary. Indeed, these systems that denude the land actually create more problems than, than they can justify in terms of out, outputs of food. Now this is a very simple picture because it's a tale of two converging streams. The stream here comes off a conventional farm. That farm plows, not on the contour, but usually straight up and down on the slope. It uses fertilizer. It grows crops to then feed its livestock. It doesn't feed humans with the plowed feed. It has to feed its livestock who can't graze all year round. It's a very inefficient system. And when it rains, and when it rains a lot, like it did um, in 2003-13, a vast amount of silt and topsoil comes off the land. And this isn't the story just of a farm in Devon. This is the story of farms in the Bay of Biscay, which is, has plumes by satellite of soil reaching out into the ocean. This is the story of the American Dust Bowl. This is the story of the... Australian, fragile, brittle environment. This is another story in Africa. This is what we're doing all over the world. 
But to bring it home, in the river catchment area of the Tamar in Devon, one study suggests that soil is being lost at the rate of five tonnes per hectare per year. So we have this natural resource, soil, this living system, and actually we're mining it, we're losing it. It's flowing from our land. This clear water comes from the other side of the valley. It comes from farmers uh, called Rebecca Hoskin and Tim Green. You might have seen their film, The Farm for a Future. They've been practicing holistic grazing um, and they've been restoring their hedgerows and doing all sorts of other work to lock up the soil, to retain the sward. But they recently moved last year to a new farm um, which gives them a little bit more room for experimentation. It's 175 acres in Devon. This top picture here is part of the old um, beef farm's forage system for the cattle. So the, the farm grew all sorts of legumes and grains to harvest and then make silage. And this soil here, when we first walked on it last May, was there was no topsoil. It had all just been washed off the side and down into the valley. It was hard, stony and lifeless and there was very low biodiversity there. By contrast, this is just seven months later. You can see this is the same view. You can see this is using holistic plan grazing, which is a system whereby you take a, a flock of animals and you copy nature. So instead of having those animals on a big field and letting them graze freely, you, you graze them tightly as if there was a lion or a top predator, a wolf about. So they graze tightly, they eat the sward down, they are um, mimicking that same system that we've heard about in Yellowstone Park where, where the antelope move on because the wolves have been reintroduced. They graze, the herbivores, they lie down, they digest, they stand up, they poo, and out of that system comes a, a trophic cascade, if you like. They fertilize the soil, and then the farmer, the next day, moves them onto a clean strip. And what that does is it eats all of the grazing down to the, to the correct level, but doesn't overstamp the land, so it doesn't become muddy. It allows then the field to rest, the ecosystem kicks in, the beetles come along, they burrow into that lovely sheep manure, and they take it underground, and they start to build soil. They start to encourage the healthy um, microbes in the soil. It is a completely different view of farming, one that's very rarely practiced in the UK, but is becoming more and more understood. But they don't just do that. They've planted tens of thousands of trees. They plant tree fodder for their sheep because sheep and cows know that they know how to self-medicate. The other thing they're doing is instead of having sort of huge Devon woolly things that when it rains they fall over and can't get up again, they're breeding, this, this happens, they're breeding northern shorttails. These are old varieties of sheep. Icelandic, Shetlands, Manxes, Hebrideans. They're very hardy. 
They can forage all year round without supplementing the, their food. In 100 mile an hour vertical um, winds and laced with salty water, they're, they're happy. So they're creating a far more natural creature that's actually suited to this actually quite hilly landscape that can cope with the extremes of very, very hot summers and very cold winters. And as you know, that's what we're going to get. We're going to get more extremes with climate change. They also do similar with goats. So they don't just have a herd, they have a flood, which is a flock and a herd, who coexist very happily. They're planting trees on the contour to slow down the, the rain that's going down the slope. Um, they're planting orchards, nutteries, coppice, um, tree fodder, partly for food and nutrients and partly when the sheep need some kind of medication, they will go to the tree of choice. They're also reintroducing native black bees and making vegetarian sheepskins, which uh, you'll see on this rather delicious looking bed. They don't kill their girls and make fleeces. They, they harvest the fleece and they keep their girls productive and breeding for at least 10 years. So these are the guys planting the first batch of 10,000 trees this earlier this, this year, all on the contour. They, don't, they have absolute minimal mechanization. They want to work with nature, not against, and create a biodiverse, rich ecosystem. Just a little diagram of the kind of things that they're doing. We're looking at a multi-dimensional um, enterprise here with many yields. Some are about creating animal products. Some are about education and research. Some some are about the biodiversity and conservation levels and none of this farm is now ploughed at all. It's all about sequestering carbon into the soil, building biodiversity, building fertility and creating enterprises, bringing people back onto the farm. So farmers got very lonely with all these machines. You know, it's usually one or two men it's, it's lost its community. We've lost our blacksmiths. We've lost our, our bodgers and our charcoal makers from the wood. We've lost the idea of keeping pigs and having pin, pig panage. And it's bringing back those traditions, but using modern methods to achieve it, both financially and ecologically. And the ultimate aim is ecological restoration. In a way, the food is a very powerful story, but in a way it's not the sole motivation for farming here. Um, the UN is saying that uh, agroecology within 10 years um, could feed the world. It's a highly efficient way of producing food. Actually, our linear ploughing system is highly inefficient. I could say to you that we perhaps eat about 20 different types of food and there's probably 20,000 that we could grow at least around the world. So my second her heresy is about renewable energy. Wind turbines are regarded as blots on the landscape. I love the recent UKIP candidate. 
What will happen when renewable energy runs out? I thought that was brilliant. Yes. Wind turbines, they're unreliable. They can't provide continuous supply of electricity, so we need nuclear generation and we need natural gas derived from fracking. And this will also benefit our local economy, of course, won't it? Transformational heresy is no, it's the opposite. So what's happening? So we're going to build another of these in Somerset at Hinkley C. We have six, the big six energy companies. And our political policy in the last, since the last government was elected has actually... Um, taken 70,000 at least renewable energy jobs out of the economy. So we, our government policy has had a very uh, deliberate um, direction, which has been to disinvest from renewables and invest in nuclear and fracking. For me, it's a total lack of the imagination and utterly, utterly irresponsible. But what do we say to our critics? Um, this is a story about Professor Keith Barnum, uh, who wrote a book called The Burning Answer. And this is one example of how you can create a resilient renewable energy system. It's called the Combi Kraftwerk, um, which is German for the combined power plant. And this project was a research project that started in Germany in uh, January 2006 and ran for a year. Um, and it ran a computer program that matched real-time electrical power demand on um, the German grid using real-time power output from a number of different sources. So there were wind turbines, uh, photovoltaic cells, and biogas electricity generators. And what they found was that they could easily easily supply the power that was needed by this mosaic of sources. But what was really interesting was you'd think, oh, well, of course they had to have biogas and use that a lot because the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't come out. But what they actually found was that the wind and the photovoltaic generators provided 78% of the total power of the system. The main backup, which was just a small percentage, was produced from biogas generators. But they only had to produce actually about 17% of the power. They had a little bit of hydro storage. So when they had lots and lots of energy in excess, they pumped water from this pond to this pond. And when they were lacking in energy, they opened a valve and just let the water fall back down and generate electricity. So they had, in fact, four means of creating electricity for an entire community. And it was very, very resilient. And indeed, they only used 5% of this storage power in this project. So it just goes to prove that if we use our imaginations and we think in a diverse way, rather than having a monoculture of fracking or a monoculture of nuclear, we can create a completely alternative future for ourselves and one that isn't going to cause us vast problems of storage and pollution of watercourse and pollution of atmosphere. But do we really need to consume at the rate that we're consuming? It's shopping, isn't it? We're power shopping. So after the tsunami in Japan, 
um, the Japanese government were a little bit short of electricity for reasons that you'll um, know about called Fukushima. And so they started up the Set Sudan movement. And this was a public project which was encouraging everybody to save energy. And they had TV programs with um, graphs about what the national grid was doing. They had agreements with industry um, to reduce energy use. And they found that within just a year of starting this project, that they were able to save 20% of the total energy use in Japan. And this was a matter of political will. That the ecozoa is actually a matter of willing it into existence. We are the creatures, we are these beings that feel the interconnection with the natural world, that have taken that evolutionary step and I would propose to you that it's, it is for us to will this into being. So, just really quick, this is another of our problems. It's totally connected with industrial agriculture. It's all the same source, really. We had all these um, interesting weaponry coming out of the Second World War. We had to do something with uh, the products that it created. So we created um, chemical fertilizers. And, and we also created pharmaceuticals. Natural and folk medicines, woo-woo, and it doesn't work. It's all the placebo effect at best. Before Glaxo, SmithKline and AstraZeneca became effective ways of investing capital on the stock market, ordinary people used herbal medicines. Villages had wise women that helped people um, die and brought babies into life. They collected and dried herbs, which came from our natural environment and were beyond the tax system. And of course, there was snake oil and unscrupulous people, but there was also a long tradition of ther the therapeutic effects of, of our common herbs, like comfrey and ribwort, rosehip and cleavers, and other commonly found plants in our environment. Now, I'm not suggesting that we dispense with all pharmaceuticals. I'm just suggesting that pharmaceuticals have become like industrial agriculture. They've become cornerstones of our economy, but not cornerstones of our health and our well-being and the health of well-being of our, our natural world. And that things like homeopathy have been utterly demonized. Elizabeth mentioned this concept that we are in a universe of vibration. And matter is vibration moving at its slowest rate. And light is vibration moving at a faster rate. And I believe that homeopathy is a form of medicine that works at a high vibrational rate and therefore it can't be measured by materialistic science and therefore it's terribly easy to turn around and say it's a load of old gibberish. However, I have seen horses and babies and other creatures that don't respond to the placebo effect respond to it. So anecdotally, so my point here is that I think we've lost our way medically as well and that we need to re-find and remember 
some of our past traditions and also embrace and hold an openness for some of these forms of natural medicine that really do work. There's a whole movement around forest gardening and, and food forests and this particular forest garden is based in Devon. It's the Agroforestry Research Trust and in this forest garden is all sorts of edible and, and therapeutic plants. And I believe that part of our evolutionary step is going back not to agriculture, but horticulture. And, and growing once again more of our fibres, more of our herbs, more of our foodstuffs, and exploring the incredible richness of foodstuffs. I mean, at the moment, we're very successfully growing Nepalese pepper in our back garden. It's one of our most appreciated and loved trees, um, and it grows beautifully. Himalayan trees tend to grow really well in, in the south of England. They like it here. Um, we also grow... Asian pears, and they grow without any human intervention. They're just not fussy. There are nuts. I mean, we don't have uh, nutteries filled with monkey puzzles yet, but perhaps in 40 to 80 years' time, we will. And monkey puzzles, you need three females for one male, and they create huge clusters of nuts, which are very like Brazil nuts but can grow in this climate, as you know, because you see them as ornamentals. And those are just three little examples of this idea of forest gardening, of gardening on, in different niches to have a productive, edible, medicinal landscape. And of course, this can happen all over the world. This is, you know, this technique actually came from places like Kerala and Bhutan and South America. I have a friend called Christopher Nesbitt who moved to Belize in 1985. Um, he took over in 1988 a completely abandoned citrus and cattle farm. Basically, the nutrients had been grazed and ploughed out of this landscape. And he compl he's converted it into a complex, stacked polyculture with over 500 species. And he's created food forests that are actually so um, biodiverse. There's actually more wildlife species moving into his land than there are into the natural ecology around him. He grows fibres, timbers, medicinals, food, very much like we can, but at very different crops and far more abundant. Take that our agriculture has become a silo for food. Our medicine has become a silo for pharmaceuticals. But actually, in our new horticultural world, they will all be combined. There won't be these kind of false divisions. This is my fourth one, which is about cooperation. This is... Um, about the gift ecology. I would say to you that the gift ecology and cooperation are key aspects to new ethical enterprise models. I was taught that to get ahead, we have to be ruthlessly competitive. To be successful, you've got to climb to the top of the pile. You've got to shine. 
And ethics, ethics just get in the way. You know, what's all this business about caring for the earth and looking after people and sharing surplus? You know, it's never going to work. Just wake up. That's socialist nonsense. Or at worst, communism. And I still get this feedback on social media. And actually, we've proved it not to be true. So, so here's a little schematic that um, is about our business. And it explains that this is a diagram of our publishing company. And on the surface, it shows a sort of hierarchy. You've got this central website that's um, getting about 4 million unique page views a year. Then there's the book publishing part and permaculture magazine, which you will have found on your chair today. And then instead of um, sending you off to Amazon, um, we don't want a monoculture called Amazon, so we send you off to our online store and ask you to invest your surplus there. But this is not just about money, because below this um, stacked multifunctional design of enterprise is actually this gift ecology. And so we try and give away as much as we can. And that might sound quite counterintuitive to a business, but incredibly, we found it worked brilliantly. And, and I'll put this slide here just in case you want to go and um, receive gifts. So we give away magazines. Um, if you're a, a, an iTunes person, you can download our latest magazine, totally free of charge. Um, we give away every single back issue that we've ever produced online, um, back to 1992, um, articles on every aspect of sustainability. And then if you're holding an event like today, we, we also want to give away our magazine. And what we find is that some people, particularly in countries without um, currency, will come and they'll um, download our books and they won't buy anything. But other people will come and they'll download our books, our free books, and then they'll think, well, I'm interested in that subject. And then they go and they buy something or they subscribe. And just by that sharing energy of gifting out and then actually receiving back, we create this gift ecology and it really works. And actually, we're busier now than we've ever been. So the more that we give away as a company, the more we receive. But that's not what they're going to teach you at Harvard Business School. Not yet. So the last thing I just wanted to talk about was this holistic worldview. This worldview that takes um, the East and the West, the best of the East and West. I, I believe that we started with a bit of a problem um, conceptually in our culture. Um, and I must hasten to say this is in no way a critique of the teachings of Jesus Christ. This is much more um, perhaps a critique of, of church um, running state, which is about command and control and the role of women in our society and the problem of sex. Many of our Western religions tend to demonize sexuality. You know, women took the apple in the Garden of Eden and were tempted by the snake. But the snake can be viewed from a very different perspective. The Basari people of West Africa 
also have a legend of the snake. The snake was also in the garden eating fruit. And the snake was the symbol of life throwing off the past and continuing to live, symbolically shedding its skin. And Joseph Campbell said, the power of life causes the snake to shed its skin just as the moon sheds its shadow. The serpent shed its skin to be born again as the moon sheds its shadow to be born again. They are equivalent symbols. Sometimes the serpent is represented as a circle eating its own tail. That's an image of life. Life sheds one generation after another to be born again. The serpent represents the immortal energy and consciousness engaged in the field of time. Reincarnation written out of our belief systems somewhere around the 6th century um, AD. And we got this idea about original sin, that we'd been bad, that we'd fallen. My friend um, John Liu, who made the, the amazing documentary Green Gold, which is on YouTube, said, original sin is the destruction of biodiversity. It's not something bad that we did. It's something that we've inadvertently done to our world in ignorance. And we can reframe our relationship with the world. So we've been cast out of the garden in our cultural mythology, and that speaks of separation. Joseph Campbell writes about the serpent as the seducer it, that amounts to a refusal to affirm life. In the biblical traditions we've inherited, life is corrupt and every natural impulse is sinful. The serpent is the one who brought sin into the world and the one woman is the one that handed the apple to Adam. So culturally we've had huge problems being women and being men because we've had this separation and we've always been encouraged to walk away from nature as primitive. The goddess, the animate world is a primitive world, a world of forces that we don't control. Or if we do control them, it's because we have to step up to that mechanized culture. But to the Buddhist, the serpent kin is a claim to Buddha. It's consciousness. To the Native Americans, it's sacred. It, re it represents the power of life. I really feel this doctrine of sin is one of control. It's part of our cultural separation. It's something that we need to come to terms with and move away from. And we need to see life as a great symbolic dance. Separation coming back together consciousness and then merging with oneness. We need to move away, embrace the purity of those teachings, those early Christian teachings of love and social inclusion. But my point is that somehow the story, our cultural story that we've been um, brought up on has missed, has totally missed the point about the sacredness of life and the fact that we're part of it. We're part of the cycle of life. We're not separate from it. And therefore, everything we do should be informed by that, not despite of it. But I'd just like to say 
that um, the courage that we need is a courage that has to swim against the dominant cultural system, our dominating um, state religion, our media that's corporate controlled, our politics who, which are utterly controlled by powerful lobbies. You know, Cameron was going to be the greenest prime minister ever, but as soon as he got into power, he got lobbied. He got, he got mashed by British gas. He got the Koch brothers control government. You know, our, our policy on energy, food, pharmaceutical, it's all controlled by money. And we, it's our job to unmask these um, cultural trends um, and speak out and say, this is happening, but we don't want it to happen. And it's our work to engage and express this resistance to what's happening in our society. And we need courage to face the trials and to bring a whole new body of possibilities into the field of interpreted experience for other people to experience. And it's us being heroes by telling our story as well as we possibly can to be the heroes that you really are already and to become heretics, to be transformational heretics and tell these stories and um, persuade people that actually a different way of running the world is utterly possible and indeed we already have the tools to lock up carbon at astonishing rates with carbon farming. We know how to run our whole communities on renewables and we know how to look after ourselves and each other and nurture each other. So thank you very much indeed for listening to me and please keep in touch. If you would like to find out more about Green Spirit why not visit our website www.greenspirit.org.uk